Welcome to Women of the Military Podcast, episode 257. This week, my guest is Nancy Bacanese. Often when you get career advice in the military, it isn't to follow your interests and passion. Instead, it's to follow a direct path towards success. But Nancy's career in the military is marked by her following what she found interesting, and then, if it didn't quite fit with what she expected, trying something new. These choices led her to be a flight test engineer, and it changed the course of her career that began in a program office at Hanscom Air Force Base. In this episode, we highlight her experience in the military and the different things she did, and how she ended up today after 20 years of service in the military, and how she's still working through transition after leaving the military in 2021. I really enjoyed this episode, and I hope you will too, but before we get started, I want to remind you that Women of the Military podcast is available on Wreaths Across America Radio on Fridays at 7 p.m. Eastern and Saturdays at 11 a.m. Eastern, and you can listen on iHeartRadio, the TuneIn app, or Odyssey. And since it's December and the National Wreaths Across America event is coming up, I want to let you know you can go to Reese Across America's website and look for where you can lay wreaths on December 16th. I will be laying wreaths this year and I'm really excited and I hope you'll look into joining in near where you are. So with that out of the way, let's get started with this week's interview. Welcome everyone to Women of the Military podcast. I'm really excited to have Nancy here. She was recommended by a close friend, so I'm really excited to hear her story. I just got to hear a tiny piece of it when her friend was recommending her, so I'm really excited to have you on the show. So welcome to the show, Nancy. Thanks, Amanda. I'm happy to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? Well, I was going to engineering school. I was a a senior in high school at that point and uh, engineering school is expensive. So uh, back in, this would have been in 1996, I was, you know, it was before Google. So I think Lycos was the search engine. I was looking for uh, scholarships for college and ROTC kept coming up. So I don't know if ROTC um, gave a lot of money to Lycos or what, but <laughs> but they have coming up. So I um, started looking into it. And uh, at the time, my, my dad was totally against it. He's like, they're going to own you for four years, you know, don't do it. And then we went up to uh, the college, Worcester Polytechnic Institute, where I ended up going to undergrad and met with the ROTC folks. And um, they, you know, it was almost like in a movie where they slide over the the number. They're like, here's what we can give her for college. And he's like, how much? Four years isn't that long. <laughs> so, so I ended up in the Air Force just because um, I knew I was going to WPI. And when I started looking into ROTC, ironically, because the Air Force always gets the, the rap of, you know, we take long lunches. We're always in air conditioning. You know, we're very uh, posh. Uh, they happen to be the only ones not at lunch when I called to set up uh, meetings with each of the ROTC folks uh, in the area. And I just didn't really look into any of the other services. So that's a little bit of a fluke how I ended up in the military or in the Air Force. And then it just, you know, four years turned into six, turned into 10, turned into 20 before I knew it. That's kind of funny. Yeah, because sometimes when I do interviews with people, they'll be like, and the Air Force, they just never called me back or you know, and so it's funny that you're, you had the opposite. You were like, everyone was on lunch. They were busy yeah. out of the office, but the Air Force was like, come here. We're ready for you. Exactly. So it's funny how huge parts of your life can really come down to luck and timing, right? 
For sure. I mean, there's a lot of luck and timing in my story as well, so I can definitely relate to that. So you went to ROTC and an engineering school. I'm guessing there was a high quantity of men because, I mean, engineering, military. So what was that experience like? Sure. So when, when I was going through WPI, if I remember correctly, so I was there in 97 through 2001, um, the ratio of men to women when I started was around eight to one men to women. I think by the time I graduated, it was somewhere around five to one. And I recently looked because my mom and I were talking about this and I think it's pretty close to 50, 50, which I think is pretty awesome, you know, 20 something years later. But yeah, and then within ROTC, we started off with a really large class size uh, for my particular year group. I think it was around 30 something. And within the first few weeks, we dropped a lot of people. And by the time we graduated in 01, there was five of us, I think. So, and it was, it was actually pretty close. I think it was three men, two women. So, uh, so we were, we were pretty evenly matched, but yeah, um, going into engineering, going into the air force, um, continuing that, that path. I've definitely, uh, I find myself in a lot of rooms with more men than women sometimes where I'm the only female in the room, um, with, you know, having to speak up for things and stuff. So I've definitely gotten used to it um, as much as you can, but every once in a while, it's definitely one of those things where you look around and you're like, wow, this is kind of sad that I'm the only female in the room right now. Where, where are the rest of us? How come there's not more of us represented here? Yeah. And I, I went to college in 2002, 2003. Like I, I transferred to the four university around that time. And I went to the uh, welcoming session for engineering and the old guy who came in was like, is this the right room? Because there are so many women. And uh, it was like, I think it was like 40% was women. And so he was like really confused. And it's interesting because just a few years later, I mean, that's like less than 10 years and you had already started to see that cultural shift. And that, I think part of that started with uh, women in STEM when I was a young woman, that was a huge thing. So. I And I, I still think, you know, it, Sometimes, um, I mean, there's there's certainly, and I'm sure we'll get into it, there's certainly, you know, gender biases and stuff. Uh, sometimes it's just that it's an older person who grew up in a different culture, a different, you know, time period. And so they don't mean to be, you know, gender biased, but they clearly are. I mean, my, my, my dad is one of them. He'll, he'll say things like, um, oh, you know, she was an engineer because he's an engineer. Oh, I met this engineer. It was a woman, but she was really good. And I'm like come on. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm saying she's really, you know, he doesn't even realize that how he's putting, he thinks he's, he's being, you know, equal opportunity about it because, um, because of how, you know, the fact that she's a woman and she's still a good engineer, but he doesn't even realize that the way he says that, you know, could be very off-putting if, if you didn't know him. I, I know him. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. There's a lot of gender biases and people who don't even, yeah. Cause I'm sure he was just trying to make a joke. And for me, it was like kind of offensive because I was like, why wouldn't it be the engine? Like, you know, you're in the right place, but that's an interesting way to like, remember perspective and like how sometimes when you hear things, you're like, get all bristled. And then you're like, oh, he probably was just making a joke and <laughs> it just didn't come across that way. Right. I know. I know. I think, um, you know, sometimes uh, it's, a, it's a fine line between giving people the benefit of the doubt and then also, you know, not letting people disrespect us or, or walk all over us or whatever. And, and 
it really, I think a lot of the times comes down to judgment and relationships that, that we have with people of knowing, knowing which side of the line we, we want to be in, in that particular moment. And I'm sure, you know, we can all say sometimes we've gotten it wrong. Right. But, but yeah, it, it's still, uh, it's still a thing, which is unfortunate, but, but I think it's getting better. Yeah, I think so too. So you also mentioned you graduated in 2001, and that was a big year for the military. A lot of change. September 11th happened. So did you go on active duty before September 11th happened? And then what was that experience like? Sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's crazy to think how long ago that is now, you know, but um, I uh, graduated and commissioned on the same day, May 19th, 2001. Um, actually started active duty June 1st or whatever the, the first day of that that, that week was. Uh, and so I was at Hanscom Air Force Base in Boston, young second lieutenant uh, working in a program office, you know, honestly pretty bored. I didn't really like it very much, uh, which kind of, you know, uh, created the trajectory for the rest of my career. But yeah, I mean, I just remember being in the office that day and uh, all of a sudden people said, hurry up, come into the conference room. They had the news up on the, the big screen and the first uh, plane had just crashed into the Twin Towers. And then minutes later, the second one did as we were watching it on the screen. So it was it was chilling, of course. I mean, I, I don't need to, you know, I don't need to belabor that at all. But it was interesting just how um, I think it was just a profound feeling. I'm getting like chills just thinking about it of not re- not knowing how is this going to change, you know, the world, the country. The, the military that I'm in right now, you know, as, as we started to hear within weeks of, you know, people deploying and stuff, it just, I mean, I, I don't think it would have changed if I had gone in the military or not. It's just obviously when I went in and early or earlier in 2001, we were in a much different world where, yeah, we'd, you know, been involved in some operations and stuff, but nothing of that magnitude. And so obviously none of us saw it coming. So it definitely felt profound, scary, um, and just, you know, confusing, I would say. I grew up in California, so I woke up to the news. And so it's always interesting to hear people who saw it happen, you know, as it, you know, live instead of like waking up to this weird radio message that was like, I was like, what is going on? Like, this does, why, where's my music? This is right. I remember too, just trying to, you know, call, like, you know, you just wanted to talk to, talk to people. Like we didn't have anything to really say because nobody knew anything, but I remember being on the phone with my mom and my cousin, uh, the three of us on a call. And even just to make that happen was difficult because of course all the phone lines were, were gummed up and stuff. So just, and like, I just remember us being on the phone and, and I was standing outside on this little balcony of the apartment that I was sharing with a roommate and it was, I think, a day or two later after they had grounded all the other air traffic. And I just remember sitting out on the balcony and we kind of didn't even know what to say to each other. There were moments of just, you know, solitude on the phone and looking up at the sky and realizing, I mean, not that I always saw planes flying over, but I wasn't too far from Boston Logan Airport. So uh, it was not unusual to see traffic in the air and, and just realizing I'm not going to see any planes, you know, and who knows when I will. So just, you know, very, of course, eerie and somber, uh, of course, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sure I'm not saying anything that's shocking to anybody. So that was an interesting trajectory for your, your military career. But you also mentioned a key piece that I don't know if people heard, but you said I was bored in my job and that had an effect on what happened. So you were doing engineering, you weren't that excited. So what did you do? What change did you make to change your career? 
So it's not that I didn't love engineering, it's that what I didn't realize is that the Air Force doesn't use engineers the way, you know, Lockheed or Boeing or Northrop or one of these other companies would use us for. So I was expecting, you know, I just spent four years doing all this math and science and I was expecting to be hitting the books and, you know, designing things or whatever. I, I don't know exactly what I had in mind, but what I realized fairly quickly uh, was that the Air Force uses engineers as technical oversight. And so now it seems obvious to me, but at the time I was young and ignorant and, um, and bored. So I didn't like sitting in a program office overseeing other work. And so if you didn't figure it out from my story about how I got into the Air Force, I consider myself very much a planner and um, very deliberate and methodical about certain things. But for some reason, when it comes to things I do in life, I don't always, uh, or in my career, I don't always, uh, or I shouldn't say now, but back then I didn't always research all the different details. And so one of my really, really good friends uh, was another lieutenant in the office. We got to be basically best friends when I got there. And he had gone through uh, undergrad at Rochester Institute of Technology. And one day he was like, yeah, there was some sort of master's degree program up there where Air Force students were full-time students and they could get their master's or PhD. And then they went down to this place called the National Reconnaissance Office and they um, they did you know engineering down there. And so that was all he knew about it. And I said, oh, National Reconnaissance Office, the NRO. I'm like, are they hands-on engineering? And he's like, I think so. So, so I applied for the program, got in, you know, got because I figured I had to get a master's degree anyway as a, as a technical person in the Air Force. Got the master's degree, loved it. RIT was an awesome school. My job was to be a full-time student for two years. I had a six-month internship slash, you know, mini education with industry kind of thing with uh, ITT, which used to be Kodak. Uh, so really great experience, really enjoyed it was really looking forward to the hands-on engineering I was going down to the NRO to do and got down there. And my first day was my boss bringing me around to this meeting, that meeting, this meeting. And finally I said to him, Dave, you know, with all these meetings, when do we get to do our work? And he looks at me and just straight faces going to meetings is our job. And I, I was like, Oh, <laughs> I've made another terrible mistake. So that was a four year controlled tour. The only way to get out of a control tour is to get selected for something. So another friend of mine at the NRO told me about this thing called test pilot school. And he's like, yeah, engineers can go through too. And, and I said, well, what do they do? He goes, I don't know. I think they sit in the back of aircraft and they do test stuff. And I said, well, how do I apply? So he told me how to apply and I applied to that and got into it. And, and so then was in test for the rest of my career, which I loved. And it was much more hands-on. I still have to go to meetings and stuff, but uh, definitely more up my alley, but certainly not a well thought out plan. Uh, and I, I tell people when I'm talking to them about, about my career, I don't necessarily recommend doing it that way, but I, I do think the lesson is be open. And if you're unhappy, make a change uh, if you can. And, uh, and hopefully you eventually fall into what is interesting to you, which I finally did, but it took me a little while to get there. It took a few turns to get where you wanted to go. But along the way, you got to, I mean, you got your master's, you got that really cool experience of working with industry, and then you got to work at the NRO, and they do pretty cool stuff that they can't talk about. And then test pilot. So let's talk about test pilot school and what that experience was like, because do engineers and pilots go to the same school or the... Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I can speak to the Air Force Test Pilot School. Uh, the Navy, I know, does things a little bit differently. 
but um, the way Air Force did it back, so I went in, I was a 08 Alpha, so I went in, um, started in January 2008 and graduated in December 2008. There's two classes going through at a time. So another class is, you know, either six months ahead of you or six months behind you, depending on where you're at. So at the time I went through, it was 20 students. So 10 of them were pilots. I think it was eight of us were engineers and we had two navigators or it might have just been one navigator but now they do weapon systems officers uh they do um uh you know uncrewed aircraft uh you know like uav pilots stuff like that um so the mix is all different now but that was the mix at the time and so i mean it was it was awesome for me i had been in a couple of cessnas in my life just you know flying a little bit. And then I had uh, been into skydiving. So I jumped out of a lot of planes, but I hadn't stayed in them long enough to really appreciate what was going on. And so just getting to sit in the backseat of T-38s and F-16s and C-12s, which are like King Airs, each thing had its own, you know, kind of unique thing about it. It was fun being with the students. We were all going through, you know, the same experience um, and just learning how to be testers. So the pilots learn how to fly very um, particular profiles, and we all learn about the academics behind it, performance and systems and flying qualities, handling qualities. And then the engineers are learning how to write test plans, getting pilot input. Um, sometimes we were down in a, a control room on the ground, running the test from there uh, and looking at strip charts and stuff or digital strip charts nowadays. That are, I mean, it's not even strip charts anymore. I'm, I'm I'm dating myself even even though I'm not that old. <laughs> and so uh, so yeah, I mean it was it was an exciting year. There were frustrations and stresses and stuff, but I was I loved it and just was so glad I got the opportunity to go through it. It's very confusing though. And my mom still doesn't understand that I'm not a test pilot. She'll tell people, oh, she was a test pilot. I'm like, no, mom, I was a flight test engineer. Well, but she was a test pilot in test pilot school. I'm like, no, I was an engineer in test pilot school. So I'm sure most people have no idea what I'm talking about when I try to briefly say what I've done. <laughs> I made the same mistake. I read Fly Girls Revolt and Eileen Bajorkman, she is a flight test engineer and she and I was like yeah you're a flight test pilot she's like no 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 I'm not and I was like I should know this and even my husband worked in tests at his first assignment so I know a little bit about like the test community and so I was like I should have known that and I read your book which I highly recommend Fly Girls Revolt it's such a good book about the history of women in aviation it's just it's really fascinating and I leaned weaves part of her story in there. And so I, it was really fun to read. I actually listened to your podcast with her in it because I, I um, was at Edwards Air Force Base for a long bit of my career. And of course, she's a, you know, just a, a very well known and highly respected uh, person at the base. And so I got to interact with her a few times. I'm sure she wouldn't remember me, but just a very impressive woman. So when I saw that you had uh, interviewed her, that was one of the ones I listened to. So it was quite interesting to hear her take on things. So that's really cool that you guys have that tie-in. So I'll link to that episode in the show notes if people want to listen to it because she didn't talk a lot about her career. She talked more about the book, but her story is really interesting as well, especially going through test pilot school when she did, when women were first getting into that career field. And so that was really interesting. So did you get to do the hands-on engineering that you were looking for as a flight test engineer? I would say yes. I mean, it wasn't what I had initially pictured when I was going through undergrad. Um, but 
or even grad school, but um, I definitely got to be more hands-on. After test pilot school as a student, uh, I went to, uh, so that's out at Edwards Air Force Base in California. I went to the 419th squad test squadron uh, at Edwards, which is all the bombers. So I worked on at the time, the B1, the B2 and the B52. Uh, and I got to fly in the B52 quite often and the B1 a few times. I got to go inside the cockpit of the B2, but they never let me go airborne in that one. <laughs> but I loved it. I mean, just worked on all different types of programs, you know, new weapon systems, uh, software upgrades, just a lot of different interesting work. Then I actually got dragged back to uh, test pilot school to be an instructor. And I say dragged back because I didn't want to, you know, and I'm lucky that I had built a good reputation for myself. So they wanted me back, which I guess, you know, I should have been happy about, but I was not thinking I would enjoy being an instructor. And it's funny how, and my mom says this a lot, like sometimes the things that you're least excited about turn out to be some of the best experiences. And that was so true. I, I worked uh, on staff for three years and just worked with some amazing people, got to see a lot of students go through and, and see their their whole evolution of what I had gone through, you know, where they're excited, then they're annoyed, then they're stressed, and then, you know, like some happiness peppered in there as well. And and so it was it was really rewarding to, to see them as students as well. So it, it ended up being a, a, a great uh, experience going back there. And I had some other test experiences as well. And it was just I mean, it's, you know, I was never sitting there calculating. I didn't have to get out any slide rules or, or scientific calculators or anything. And I'm not very good at MATLAB, so I didn't have to code anything in that. But definitely, you know, making sure test plans made sense and getting, you know, the, the actual test ready with the, the pilots and other engineers and making sure we were gathering the right data and stuff. That kind of problem solving is definitely something I feel passionate about. Yeah, I think it's interesting, especially if you work in the military, how different engineering is from college. But I think engineering is kind of like what you learn in school is, you know, very technical and not, you know, the typical experience for people. But I, I don't interview people who work in engineering, so maybe it is. But it is interesting how different it is. I went back to get my professional engineering license. And I think that was a big thing because as a civil engineer, I wasn't doing any math or engineering, I was doing pro project management, and I really missed doing the math part of it. And so I was able to get my math fixed doing my professional engineering license, which is an eight hour test. That's a lot that's of fun. Impressive. Yeah, no, I, I took that test out of, um, out of undergrad. And I, I think you have to take multiple things, right? I never did whatever the that was enough for me. I'm like, nope. <laughs> yeah, you have to take the EIT, the engineering and training. And then there's uh, to get your professional engineering, there's another eight, or depending on what state you're in, there might be extra tests, but there's an eight-hour test to get your professional engineering license. So, yeah. Well, that's impressive. Congratulations on that. I actually don't have it current anymore, but it was really fun to do. <laughs> yeah, you did it. That's a, you could probably go back and do it again if you really wanted yeah. to. So you went to be an instructor, kicking and screaming, I don't want to do this, but the military doesn't really give you a choice. And so you did that and you loved it. And after that, what happened next in your career? Uh, so from there, I went to Air Command and Staff College, which is uh, professional military education out at uh, Maxwell Air Force Base. Again, I wanted to go to one of the, you know, smaller, um, higher, highly competitive programs and you know, I don't know what the actual percentage is, but a high percentage of, of uh, officers, as you know, end up going to Maxwell. Again, kind of kicking and screaming. I'm like, I don't want to go to Alabama for a year. 
turned out to be awesome. Loved being around, you know, peers of majors and some civilians, uh, people from other countries, uh, other services. It was an amazing experience. The year flew by, um, just really enjoyed it, learned some stuff. Um, and, you know, just really it, everything ends up being about relationship building. Right. And I still, I still stay in touch with some of those folks, which is really amazing, I think. Uh, and then from there, I went back to Edwards. So my, my career, I, I hopped back to Edwards quite often. In that case, it was because I wanted to. I, I didn't want to go to a staff job at the Pentagon. And so uh, I found a director of operations job out at the Electronic Warfare Squadron, uh, where they do um, testing inside a chamber called the Benefield Anacoic Facility or the BAF. And so they had an open position uh, looking for a major to be a director of operations put my name in the hat for that, was told, you know, I should go to staff because that was what was best for my career and I wasn't going to make the command list and all all the things that, you know, not not because anybody was trying to derail me, but they, you know, they thought that the, what they were telling me was was accurate and, and good information. But, you know, my, my whole take on kind of life in general is you're going to do better at things that you actually want to do. So I never had my, my sights set on a specific rank or job. I just wanted to you know, whatever was, I mean, certainly I, I had a, a kind of a plan, but I didn't, I didn't, you know, put my whole soul into it where if it didn't work out, it was going to be a disappointment. Um, and so even, you know, when I was dragged kicking and screaming to things, I kind of gave myself about a week to, you know, feel bad about it. And then it was time to accept it and do well in it. And like I said, those ended up being great experiences anyway. And so, so I went, you know, to be the DO and made the command list um, that year, but the timing wasn't right. And so made it again the next year and got to be a squadron commander of our sister squadron in the electronic warfare group. And so, you know, being a squadron commander was really the pinnacle, I think, of my career just because it's, it's just really um, rewarding to see a squadron continue to do good work. They were already doing good work under the previous commander and just seeing all these young new engineers come in. That was probably one of my favorite parts was seeing these brand new engineers who um, the flight chiefs who worked for me did a phenomenal job of recruiting, getting them to come out to the desert in Edwards, you know, and be excited about it and just seeing them develop over those two years and then continuing to see their development like on LinkedIn and Facebook and stuff like that is was just really rewarding. I mean, being a part of people's development and 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 just a, an amazing team and helping to foster a, a you know a good team is just something that I feel very passionate about. So it, it was a great assignment there too. Yeah, I love how you talked about two things. You talked about like you gave yourself a week to be sad, which I think is so important in military life because sometimes you are like, well, this is what I have to do. I just need to like not show emotion and just be fine with it. And in a way you did that, but you allowed yourself to have that week to process and be like, I'm sad about this. This is how I feel. Okay. Now it's time to move on. And I think that time to process is so important. And then I love hearing how you're talking about <laughs> the people that you worked with and the, like what they're doing today and how you stay connected in the relationships. And I think it's really cool to hear commanders talk about how, leading the next generation is what was most impactful about being a commander. I mean, of course, there's a mission. It's cool. It's exciting. But really, you know, changing people's lives and pouring into them, it it really means a lot to, you know, lieutenants who have great commanders who do that and encourage you and push you. And so 
That's really cool to hear. I love that. Thanks. Yeah. So you got to be a commander and you were at Edwards. And then what happened next in your career? So at that point, I was, uh, let's see, my my command was up in um, summer of 2019. And um, I had uh, wanted to go to, so I knew at that point um, that I was planning to retire right around 20 years. Um, the you know, whether or not I would have made uh, 06 Colonel, I don't know. Um, it, again, I didn't have my sights set on a specific um, rank or anything, but the jobs that I saw as potentially being open to me at that point as an 06, if, if it happened, just weren't things that I felt excited about. And so I thought, you know, maybe this is the time to get out and see what the next chapter is going to be. But I still had a couple more years left. So I asked leadership at Edwards if I could go to the 413th Test Squadron at, um, technically it's out of Eglin. It's um, it's based at Hurlburt and Duke Field out there in the Panhandle of Florida. But it would be pretty non-standard for somebody who had just been a squadron commander to go back to a squadron. So I knew it was going to be a hard sell. I knew it wasn't impossible because a group commander I worked for had done something similar many years prior. Uh, but I may, uh, back in 2013, uh, on a whim, decided to get my helicopter pilot's license and eventually became an instructor and was doing that part-time on my own time outside the military at a wonderful place in um, Carlsbad, California called Civic Helicopters. They treated me amazingly throughout all the time that I, I was a student and, a, and on staff there. But anyway, so I thought, well, hey, if it's going to be my last assignment, I'm not worried about you know career development and all that. I love being in test. I want to stay hands-on. What better place than to put probably the only test pilot school grad, flight test engineer, who's also a helicopter instructor uh, who wants to go back to a squadron. Like I, I kind of, I mean, I didn't research it. There might've been one other person in the military who had those same qualifications, but I, I kind of thought I had, you know, a uniquely perfect experience to go to the, the helicopter test squadron. And so it worked out uh, again. It, it, there, I got a lot of raised eyebrows and people saying, no, you're not going to be able to do that. And then luck and timing. Um, they had two ACAT one programs, so two major programs, high dollar, high congressional oversight that were coming down their pipeline and they were short on people because they just hadn't expected both the programs to end up on top of each other. So that worked out where um, General Bunch was the uh, Air Force Materiel Commander at the time looked at Edwards and Eglin and said, how are you guys going to, you know, staff for these two programs? And Edwards was like, well, we happen to know this Lieutenant Colonel who wants to go there. So that's how I got to go. I did have to do a brief stint as an ops group uh, deputy commander. So a lot of paperwork and, you know, just staff work for a few months, but uh, I felt like that was my penance for getting my, my final uh, dream assignment, which working at the 14th, 413th uh, was just incredible. I got to sit in the back of Huey's and uh, the MH-139, which is the Huey replacement that I was working on and uh, actually got to fly the Huey because I was a test pilot school grad. Even though I was a pilot, they, I could only fly down to 300 feet, but hey, I, I would have taken anything at that point. So it was amazing. So that two years. And it was also during COVID because uh, I yeah. got out there in September of 2019 and left in the summer of 2021. And so um, it you know, even despite all the the chaos of COVID, it was an amazing experience there too. 
Yeah, I was thinking about the timing and I was going to ask, like, even it was, you're like, it was so amazing. And I'm like, but wasn't there a global pandemic going on? Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, that definitely, you know, just like everybody, we were kind of shocked at, you know, we're working from home now and all that. Uh, but, you know, we eventually got to the point where for ground testing and flight testing, we were able to come back on site and, um, you know, got the vaccines and all that kind of stuff. So it, it eventually worked out. There was definitely a lot of uncertainty in the middle of that. Uh, but I think even that you see the the best in some people come out like our our commander at the time. He had let me think he had basically the pan like we all got sent home and then he went from being the director of operations to the commander of that squadron like a month or two later. So huge undertaking for a brand new commander and um, just a really solid leader. He was very deliberate about how we use teams and all that kind of stuff. So I think having that early on when a lot of organizations were struggling with how to use Microsoft Teams even, you know, and never mind how to use it effectively. I think that really helped keep it a uh, as positive as experience as it could be, you know, amongst all the uncertainty. So that was, it was great working for somebody who, you know, just had a vision and, and you know, was also open to feedback. You could be very candid with him on, on you know, how he was handling things, you know, as long as you did it respectfully and stuff. So just um, that was another, you know, great experience. So I, I feel very lucky for the, the career that I had, you know. Yeah, that sounds really great. I love when you have leaders who are willing to take feedback and that you know that it's a safe place to provide that feedback because then it allows you to, you know, come up with the idea and be willing to share it and and not be like, should I share this? Like you have that open communication and it just makes the whole group better. So that's so awesome to hear that you had such a positive experience with great leadership in a really trying time. And so that that's amazing. I love hearing that you were like, yeah, that sounds boring. I don't want to do that. And so you followed your own path. And I think you know, sometimes people have like the best intentions of saying like, really, you should do this job because it'll help your career. But you have to decide like what's important for you. If if getting, you know, promoted to general is what's important, then you have to do those things. But if it's really to just have a career that you enjoy, you have a little bit of flexibility in what you do. Well, and I also think you, so what I always told people, you know, for anybody, I mean, you can tell I'm a talker. So if anybody would ask me, I, I was happy to give them my opinions on things. But, um, you know, I had younger officers and, and even, you know, folks not in the military ask me, you know, about, you know, should I do this? Or should I get a degree in this? Should I get my master's in business or something technical? And what I always tell people is do what interests you. I mean, obviously, you know, have an idea of how you're going to apply it if you're if you're counting on that to, you know, make you money, you know, for a career and stuff. But other than that, if if you choose things based on getting to a certain rank or a certain position, say in the military, what if you get to that rank or position and you hate it, you know, and it's not at all what you thought it was going to be. And also you were miserable in all the things leading up to it because you thought these are the boxes I have to check to get there. What what's that all for? You know, I mean, maybe it's an amazing experience when you finally get there and it was worth it, but there's also the risk that it won't be. So I'm very much of the mindset of find something that you like to do. I mean, sure, there were days, sometimes weeks where I was frustrated and stressed and, you know, wishing I was doing something else. But overall, I was very happy with with the majority of my assignments. And so, you know, I, I think that 
people see that, right? You know, people, you know, hopefully saw me as, as a good teammate and maybe a good leader and um, a good follower. And because I was enjoying what I was doing, and then they saw that as, you know, she might be really good as a commander. And I mean, not that they got to interview me to do it, you know, it's all based on paper or well, maybe not paper records anymore, but you're, you're basically just a file that they're looking at, but hopefully, you know, your performance reviews at that point reflect that your, your leadership has confidence and, and respect for you. And, and that leads to doors that, you know, may or may not have been opened, even if you checked all the boxes, because frankly, not that anybody's trying to give you bad advice. They're trying to give you the advice that they think is, is good advice, but nobody knows there's no one particular path to, to have a successful career in the military or outside the military. I'm sure people who are generals didn't start off their career thinking I'm going to be a general and I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. I'm sure some of them have, and I bet you we could probably pick them out because they're probably not the ones who are the most effective and, and the most revered because they had that in mind. I definitely worked for people who you knew had a certain rank or job in mind and they were willing to do whatever it took to get there. And Sometimes that meant not being very good at fostering their team and, and a good organizational culture. So I think there's definitely a downside to it if, if you do have that kind of mindset. Not that everybody who's motivated to be a general, of course, is, is a terrible leader, obviously. But um, I think our, our motivations uh, definitely bleed through into how we approach things. So, you know, if, if we're doing it for the wrong reasons, people pick up on that. That's so true. There's definitely certain people that you're like, yeah, that person will stab me in the back and they don't have my back because, yeah. And then there's other people who are just like amazing to work for. And then one of Michael's former bosses is now a three star and he's like, he is like the best boss ever and he's such a good person. And yeah, and he he was there, you know, taking care of his people and now he's a three star. And that's just really cool to get to talk to him and like, interact with him and follow his career and great leaders they really do rise because you know the rising tide lifts all boats I think that really is true even in especially in the military because the people around you 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 help propel them forward and and they make you look good and then that helps you get promoted and so that is true so you left kind of near the end-ish of COVID, it was still a thing, but kind of starting to open up. I know in Florida, they were like, COVID's over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was a little bit different than, I was in Northern Virginia, and they were like, COVID is not over. So it was kind of interesting. But what was the transition out of the military? It sounds like you were ready to put the military behind you and start something new. So what was that transition like? Yeah, so I um, went on my terminal leave in early July 2021. I officially retired uh, September 30th of 2021 and spent that summer um, home in Connecticut, which is where I am now, uh, where my family is. So I had been away from my family for all of those years. I mean, obviously I got to see them on vacations and stuff and we would um, come fly to see each other, but a long time away from each other. And so I spent a couple months uh, here in Connecticut um, staying in my parents' guest room <laughs> and uh, you know, I had interviewed for some jobs and stuff and um, I ended up accepting a job, but I didn't want to start until October when, you know, when my terminal leave was up. And so I work for American Systems now. We're a, a, an employee owned company and a support contractor to NASA. So I get to work alongside some some additional brainy people, just like in the Air Force um, with NASA. But the transition, um, I would say I'm still going through it. It's um, 
I'm sure you can relate. Like you've, however long you spend in the military, especially if it was a positive experience, which mine definitely was, it's, it's your identity, right? I mean, from the time I was 18 and doing ROTC and I was, you know, getting chills as they were doing uh, Reveille and retreat ceremonies, you know, I just felt so patriotic, loved that. Um, and so from basically 18 on, I had some kind of affiliation with the military, went on active duty when I was 22 and then retired at, at 42. And it's definitely, and I expected it, but there's really no way to prepare for it a hundred percent is you feel like you're mourning the loss of something, you know, like I'm, I'm no longer in the military. I mean, even just getting on airplanes now, you know, they, they invite active duty to come up and board first, but retirees, they don't care about, you know? And so, you know, even small things like that of, wow, like I don't matter the way I used to. And I, I don't mean that, you know, flippantly, like, obviously I matter, right? My mom would say I do, but, but, you know, it's just different. Like my identity for, 20 plus years had been being a member of the armed forces and serving my country. And so, and you have that whole community and people have shared experiences that you don't even have to tell them what certain acronyms are, you know, everybody knows TDY and PCS and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself just in a, in a different world. And so I would say, you know, it's, it's been about two years now and I, I still miss that. I don't regret my decision, uh, but it's something that I feel like um, in a good way is always going to be part of me. And I'm always going to feel that patriotism and, 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 you know, pride that I served my country for, you know, for the, the years that I did. And, and I'm always going to feel even a small instant connection with anybody I meet who spent any time in the military, you know, even two years is you're still serving your country, you know? So, um, so that, that part of the transition was, I would say challenging and is continuing um, but I'm finding other ways to feel like what I'm doing matters. You know, I mean, I, I definitely love my job. I love the team that I'm working with now. And I've, you know, I found that just, um, randomly I get people on LinkedIn who reach out and ask me, you know, mentoring questions. And I love that. So, um, so that kind of stuff, you know, helps me still feel a connection, I guess, like a, a sense of purpose that's beyond just my, my everyday job. So so that has helped. But yeah, the transition is definitely a, a a challenge. Yeah, it definitely is. And I I say it takes three to five years and I was only in for six years. So um, I feel like you're you're right on the right track of like feeling those, you know, inner turmoil. And then, you know, some things you always, you know, miss or are a part of who you are. It is a transition, but I think the thing that helped me the most when I left the military was getting involved in the veteran community and especially going to women veteran conferences. So yeah, so I'll share some of, I, I went to the Women Veteran Unconference in September and it's a really fun conference. It was in Vegas. And um, I also got to go to Women Veteran Interactive, which is in DC and their conference is in November. So um, I can send you the info about that because it's, a, it's just so cool to be, it's cool to go to conferences with other veterans, but it's really cool to go to a conference with a bunch of women veterans because you have an extra layer of connection and community. And the first time I was in a room with 300 women and they were all veterans, I was like, this is so weird and so awesome. And so it was, 
it was really fun. So I'm I'm always up for a women veteran conference and veteran conferences as well, just because they're such a great way to connect with other veterans. But yeah, the veteran community is amazing. So if you're not plugged in there, I'd highly recommend starting to connect with other veterans because they understand what you're going through and they have all these resources that can help you if you ever need anything. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Any any information you want to send me, I would love to get. I mean, you when you said, you know, it's it's awesome to be in a room with 300 other women who are veterans, it made me think of how we almost take for granted, I think, as as women in technical fields that we're almost always outnumbered in a room as far as male to female ratios. And so it's it's almost sad that it's like a, a an amazing thing to walk into a room of of women who are you know who've had shared experiences and stuff and you know hopefully someday other women will look at us and be like well what's the big deal about that I'm around you know at least half women all the time you know <laughs> yes that's what we're going for so um, I really love this interview but I always like to end my interviews with what advice would you give to the next generation of young women who are considering military service. I, I would highly recommend it. I mean, I know that, you know, some women have had, a lot of women have had very challenging experiences, you know, whether it was in the military or outside just, you know, because of being a woman. Um, and, you know, that, that could be anything from something traumatic to just, you know, gender bias or whatever. But, but I, I find that, you know, like I said, feeling like I served my country was very rewarding, having that community, having those instant connections with people. Any job is going to have its its ups and downs. And so you might as well, you know, have that sense of purpose, you know, go get education that's paid for, you know, um, all, all that kind of all the goodness with it too. And find what you love to do. Whenever you're faced with a choice of, you know, do I go for the business masters or the technical masters or whatever it is, Try to think about what you're going to enjoy doing more because you're going to enjoy your life a whole lot more and you're probably going to end up being a lot more successful because of that. So so don't don't be trying to check boxes, do the things that you think you're going to love. And and if it turns out you don't love them, then, you know, do a great job until you figure out the, your exit strategy to the next uh, opportunity. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And it's something that we heard th- continually through the podcast of, you know, follow what you're passionate about. and. I can attest to my my degree is in civil engineering and now I run a podcast and I'm a writer. And when I left the military, people are like, why are you not going into engineering? And I was like, I just don't want to. Like, I'm not interested in it. I know that I have all the boxes checked, but it's just not something I want to do. And so I don't know why I was so I guess I really didn't want to do it because I was like, nope, not doing that. I'm going to do this other crazy thing that didn't have a guaranteed outcome. And luckily with my husband uh, supporting me, I was able to take that venture. But I really think following your passion is so important and seeing what makes you happy and following that journey. And it'll really, it'll really change your life. And so thank you so much for being a guest and for sharing your story. I'm so glad we got to connect. Thank you, Amanda. And I'm so glad that that Joan introduced us. She's a wonderful person, she and Brian. So I really appreciate that you uh, interviewed me and, and it's been a pleasure interacting with you.